Okay, picture this. You're 16 years old, you've just gotten your license, and you've saved up all of your paychecks from working at the Carmike Cinema. So your dad is going to take you to the used car lot to pick out a car of your very own. It's not going to be a new car, mind you, but hey, wheels are wheels, especially at this age. And so you excitedly go down to the dealership, thoughts swirling through your head about what you might be able to afford on a reasonable enough budget. Maybe a high mileage but still running Dodge Neon, like the one your cousin had before he totaled it. Or maybe a Crown Vic police interceptor, because you have friends who smoke weed behind the elementary school playground, and you like the idea of pranking them. Or a Mercedes 380 SL, because this might be your only chance to say you have a Benz and have your SoundCloud rap lyrics actually be true. The possibilities are endless as your mind races the closer you get to the dealership. Except, well, that's not actually what happens when you get there. All those interesting cars you grew up reading about and riding in, the cars that you hope to one day drive yourself and potentially modify and maintain and keep on the road, those are mostly gone. And in their place are any number of overpriced Corollas, Camrys, Accords, and Priuses. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with those cars in your teenage mind. Again, wheels are wheels. But they aren't what you wanted. All of your friends have those cars. Most of your family does too. You wanted to stand out, own something different, and pay for it in a single transaction with all the money you saved. No loans, no leases, no interest. Just one exchange. But then it's 2010, and the damage has already been done. You see, over the past year from where this hypothetical kid is now, a ton of cars have been destroyed in the name of stimulating the auto industry and reducing the negative impact on the environment that many older cars had created. Which, in turn, led to a bit of a problem for the kid hoping to own a car from before Chrysler sucked. Basically, due to the relative shortage of older used cars, the price of what remains now has surged. And this is where Uncle Matt comes in with his tales of days gone by, when you could own a Chevy Caprice and not have to refinance your entire life for the opportunity. Because while your Uncle Matt is pretty young for the common man's conception of an uncle, he's not so young that he can't remember a time before a program called Cash for Clunkers came along, with the best intentions to help the auto industry and the environment, only for the consumers to get caught in the crossfire, and for a bunch of perfectly good, beautifully functioning contemporary classics to find a new home as part of a scrap metal orgy in an anonymous heap somewhere in the middle of Heidelberg Township. And you watch with befuddlement as Uncle Matt goes inside to play Fallout New Vegas on your Xbox. Because now he lives with you and your dad ever since his wife left for Tahiti with Gary the personal trainer. And your life is a hellish threes company where nobody knows how to close their damn robes when they come down to make coffee in the morning. And you don't want to blame Cash for Clunkers for any of it, because the intentions were good. But then, we all know what the road to hell is paved with. Welcome to RCR Stories, Cash for Clunkers. So, the quick and dirty is that Cash for Clunkers was the casual term for the federal government's car allowance rebate system, which allocated some $3 billion in economic incentives toward consumers willing to ditch their environmentally unfriendly car in favor of something more fuel-efficient. A good idea, in theory, but with some issues that make this a far more difficult narrative. See, the auto industry is weird. 
You might think Cash for Clunkers was something cooked up in the late 2000s, but its origins are intertwined with that of the used car industry, which takes us way the hell back to the late 1930s, depending on where you want to start this thing. But I'm not trying to go back to the origin of the automobile, so let's just say 1938. Essentially, dealerships at the time had a surplus of inventory, with lots and warehouses stuffed with unsold cars, collecting dust like a podcasting award sitting on a shelf between a whiskey decanter and a bound volume of the Encyclopedia Brown. As Michigan History Magazine put it, the unsold cars were tying up capital, with not enough space or turnover to bring in newer models, all while skittish consumers were holding tight to their wallets. And so, National Used Car Exchange Week was born. The brainchild of one John Raymond Davis, a sales manager at Ford, the used car drive lasted from March 5th through March 12th, 1938, and encouraged consumers to trade in their used cars in favor of a discount towards a newer used vehicle. Dealers would cut prices by an average of 20%, shaving a lean $60 off the price of cars that generally went for $275 apiece, or around $4,800 today. This was less about getting the full value of a car out of each consumer, and more about simply getting these older machines out of inventory to make way for the amount of new cars coming in. In a way, it was a plan that saved jobs at an incredibly sensitive time in the country's economic history, in the sense that factories could continue to produce new cars without falling back to restricted schedules as a result of nobody buying anything being offered. During National Car Exchange Week, approximately 175,000 cars were sold, 33% of which were purchased without trade-in. The dealerships made some money and cleared up some room for the latest models. Depending on how fancy you want to get with the argument, this event was a forerunner to the used car market as we would come to know it today, with competitive price slashing and promises of trade-in deals towards the purchase of a newer model gradually becoming the norm. The used car market was basically a godsend for anyone who couldn't afford the expense of buying new, considering how cars tend to depreciate in value the very second they leave the lot. The used car market has long been a vital part of the economy, not just for the revenue it generates, but for its ability to provide low-cost transportation to countless Americans, without demanding that they acquire a butt-ton of debt in exchange for not having to ride a city bus that can't keep a schedule to save its life. You see, it used to be that you could work a minimum wage job and still comfortably afford a beater that would at least remain somewhat consistent in performance over the two to three years of peak reliability. And if you took good care of it, you could probably stretch its prime out a little longer. Not always the case, of course. I mean, no matter how well you take care of a geoprism, I'm not sure how many years you're going to get out of it without dumping a lot of money into the effort. But hey, don't let that stop you, or the nail technician from Empire Beauty School who loves her Pontiac Sunfire with the leopard print seat covers. But what's interesting about used cars is that, contrary to how TV and films might depict the status of a beater, there isn't really a stigma with regards to buying used. There's a variety of reasons for why, some of which are factual and some of which are just hypotheses on my part. For one, it's generally easier to finance a used car, because dealers want you to leave with a car. That's why you get so many dealers proudly declaring that they won't do any credit checks. Bad credit? No credit? Just call them Oprah, because everybody gets a car. Also, vehicle history reports are more readily available than ever before, so that you really have no excuse for leaving with a lemon, provided everything on the report is clear and factual. Of course, these reports aren't always complete, which is a problem in itself, and part of why navigating the used car market can be so tricky. But then, 
Much of the used car market thrives on the beggars-can't-be-choosers mentality. If you can't buy new, you're more or less at the mercy of what's available, what's affordable, and what actually runs. As for stigma, I would argue the car enthusiast community has made buying used more palatable. What with Craigslist browsing being the new time vampire of a car enthusiast's workday, whether it's from a dealership or a private seller, the internet has practically turned the used car market into a cottage industry, and some of the best cars you'll see at a given car show have passed through a nigh-unfathomable number of different owners before settling next to old man Ajax with the worn-out lawn chair, the tin of skulls, and a disposable Dixie cup for the juice. <laughs> some could have argued back then that, well, the used car market is recession-proof, in that no matter how poor people get, they still need to get to work, and they'll find a way, even if it means taking out loans they can't afford to pay back. In some respects, it could be argued that the health of the used car market came at the expense of the wider automotive industry, and the economy at large, as we moved into the 2000s. Fewer Americans were buying new, and those who did weren't buying American. Japanese imports were less expensive, more reliable, and generally offered better fuel economy, and there was really no incentive to buy new when used cars were in such wide supply and with considerable variety in years, makes, and models. There was a veritable litany of different choices for quality used cars that wouldn't break the bank like they would today if you found the same models on Craigslist, sold by a man who is unwilling to negotiate because he knows what he has. From BMW 525i's to 91 Nissan Stances, GMC Typhoons, even an 87 Buick GNX, all at your fingertips in newspaper classifieds or local dealerships. Police Interceptors, Vanduras, Fieros, SVXs, and XC90s. A treasure trove of affordable variety, just waiting for you to wrench and hoon and enjoy in any manner you saw fit. But then, the used car market... Well, it changed, and in a way that very few people would argue was for the better. And it all started with an idea intended to give the auto industry a shot in the arm. But then, like your annual flu vaccine, a shot in the arm doesn't necessarily mean you're not still at risk of getting sick anyway. So in late 2008, a worldwide recession resulted in a lack of available credit, which in turn contributed to plummeting car sales across the United States. This is due, in large part, to the subprime mortgage crisis, since a significant percentage of cars sold in the United States went hand-in-hand -hand with the home equity loans that were suddenly evaporating, with 24% of car sales being financed this way before the collapse, as listed in a report by Atlanta-based financial services firm Synergistics Research Corp. That's a large segment of the market, financing their cars through a method of funding that was about to go belly up. Suddenly, 30 years after the government bailed out Chrysler, they were right back at square one, this time with GM in the fire alongside them. Ford had been able to avoid bankruptcy thanks to a line of credit they applied for and received in 2006, which wasn't so much a lucky break for the company as it was the result of some preemptive planning. As explained in a New York Times article by Bill Vlasic, it was Ford chief executive Alan R. Mullally who offered to mortgage company assets in exchange for billions in loans to provide, quote, a cushion to protect for a recession or other unexpected event, end quote. At $23.6 billion, these loans pretty much saved Ford. Well, that and the notion that even in a recession, Americans still wanted their damn pickup trucks. 
For example, in 2008, Chrysler sold 335,108 units across all models. Ford, meanwhile, sold 515,513 units, topping Motor Trend's list of the best sellers of 2008. And that was just for their F-Series pickup line. So while it's not as if business was particularly good for anybody at the time, it was clear that some had it far worse than others. Case in point, due to severe cash shortages, GM and Chrysler asked the government for emergency loans to avoid bankruptcy and liquidation proceedings. In fact, the emergency was dire enough for us to team up with our neighbors to the north, as Canada went in on a deal with the US government to provide $85 billion in bailout bucks to get the auto industry out of the fire. But while the $85 billion solved the immediate issue of the legacy debt owned by both companies, it created a change in the status quo, as the US Treasury now had majority ownership in GM, and the United Auto Workers Union, alongside Fiat SPA, owned majority stake in Chrysler. The government suddenly had a far more vested interest in the automotive sector, especially in the wake of a nearly concurrent oil crisis which lasted from 2003 to 2008. Just as they did during the period of the Arab oil embargo in the 70s, consumers began to pass on big gas guzzlers in favor of smaller, used cars. It was time, once again, for a reinvention of the American automotive landscape. And so, an idea was born. As Michael Canellos describes in his article, Cash for Clunkers, The Program's Inside History, it all began shortly after the election of Barack Obama in November 2008, as Jack Hideri arrived in Washington, D.C. to meet with the new president's transition team to propose a bill that would hopefully rescue the floundering American automotive industry and avoid an even worse financial situation than the one in which the country had already found itself. Hideri planned to pitch Vice President-elect Joe Biden on a car exchange initiative that would be integrated into the $787 billion stimulus bill. His thinking at the time was that the slow pace of hybrid sales meant there had been virtually no effect on greenhouse gas emissions, so a car exchange program could potentially accelerate the standardization of more fuel-efficient vehicles, while providing a boost to the auto industry by encouraging consumers to buy new. It wasn't exactly a novel idea, necessarily. Hideri had first read about a similar program being successfully implemented in Texas, as low-income car owners were offered $3,500 on a trade-in towards a new car. It was such a successful program that Hideri genuinely believed it could work on a national level. And so he reached out to Princeton economics professor Alan Blinder, whose July 2008 op-ed piece for the New York Times popularized the name Cash for Clunkers. In addition to Blinder, Hideri worked with Bracken Hendricks from the Center for American Progress and the American Council for an Energy-Efficient Economy. Together, the team co-authored a pitch that, after several ups and downs, received bipartisan support from Republican Susan Collins and Democrats Dianne Feinstein and Chuck Schumer. If nothing else, the program's foreign equivalent seemed to show that such a plan could actually work, at least in theory. Germany had implemented their own successful exchange program that saw nationwide car sales increase over 20% in the first month of their initiative being put into action, according to stats from the German Association of the Automotive Industry. A month after that, sales were up 40%. Its success overseas was enough to get the bipartisan proposal viewed by the president, who announced his support for the bill by the end of March 2009. Eventually, the House approved the creation of the CARS Act by a vote of 298 to 119, 
An abbreviation of the Consumer Assistance to Recycle and Save Act, the bill was sponsored by Representative Betty Sutton of Ohio and would allow trade-ins on vehicles with a combined fuel economy of 18 miles per gallon or less. Which is all well and good, except, you know, politicians began butting heads. On the one side was the bipartisan bill sponsored by Collins, Feinstein, and Schumer, and on the other side was another bipartisan version sponsored by Republican Sam Brownback and Democrat Debbie Stabenow. The difference in the two bills was the focus on fuel economy, as the Collins-Feinstein-Schumer bill required fuel economy of 17 miles per gallon or less on trade-ins looking for a bigger voucher. The Collins, Feinstein, and Schumer bill would also have offered multiple levels of different vouchers based on the nature of the trade-in. If you were trading in your older car for something that was 7 miles per gallon more efficient, you were allowed a voucher of $2,500 towards that purchase, whereas you were offered $4,500 towards the purchase of a vehicle if it was 13 miles per gallon more efficient than your trade-in. In addition, consumers would receive an extra $1,000 voucher toward the purchase of a used car that happened to be more efficient. However, the bill that passed the house was focused more on getting people to buy new. And in a weird way, it kind of made sense, you know? People weren't thinking about how the used car industry could help the economy, or even how much of the economy the used car industry really accounted for. Politicians seemed to equate boosting the auto industry with purchasing new vehicles, which is why one of the stipulations attached to the bill was so nonsensical. But more on that later. As the government entered into negotiations over just what the bill would entail and the amount of funding that would be allocated to the new program, there was some saltiness in the Senate about cash for clunkers being glue-gunned onto a war supplemental funding bill and an 11th hour change that called for the program's funding to come from deficit spending instead of the stimulus package that had initially been proposed and agreed upon. After much hemming and hawing, a vote of 91 to 5 saw the funding bill pass in the Senate. Out of the proposed $4 billion allowance, the program was allocated an initial $1 billion to carry the program between July 1st and November 1st, 2009. But herein lies the problem. Demand was high for cash for clunkers. Far higher than anticipated. That initial $1 billion allocation had nearly dried up by July 30th, as people came forward left, right, and center to claim their vouchers and presumably trade up. But even with Congress approving an extra $2 billion to the program, it was clear that Cash for Clunkers was in trouble almost from the moment it started. By August 24th, 2009, the money was all gone. So what were the rules for Cash for Clunkers exactly? Well, for one, the vehicle had to be less than 25 years old at the time of trade-in, in addition to being in drivable condition. The vehicle also had to be registered and fully insured for the entire year prior to the trade-in. The trade-ins also had to get a combined fuel economy of 18 miles per gallon or less. This is what helped differentiate between the size of the rebate you'd get, as the amount of the credit was between $3,500 and $4,500, and it was determined largely by the vehicle purchased after trade-in, and the difference in the fuel economy between the new vehicle and the trade-in vehicle. Basically, the better the fuel economy, the better the rebate. Now, there were some exceptions, such as work trucks, and this is straight from an archive of cars.gov, which explains why the rules are a bit different here. For clarity, trucks were split into three categories. The Category 1 truck includes non-passenger automobiles, as well as SUVs, small and medium pickup trucks, and small and medium passenger and cargo vans. A Category 2 truck is a large van or a large pickup truck based upon the length of the wheelbase, 
more than 115 inches for pickup trucks and more than 124 inches for vans. A Category 3 truck is a work truck and is rated between 8,500 pounds and 10,000 pounds gross vehicle weight. This category includes very large pickup trucks, those with cargo beds 72 inches or more in length, and very large cargo vans. As a Category 3 truck under the CARS Act, work trucks are not rated for fuel economy by the EPA. Therefore, a work truck's eligibility for a rebate didn't depend on fuel economy. It was more of a size and age thing, sort of like casting in Hollywood. And the rebate itself could be no more than $3,500, regardless of the condition of the trade-in or the fuel economy of the truck which you were expecting to replace it with. Now, a work truck can be traded in if it was manufactured no later than the 2001 model year and no earlier than 25 years prior to the trade-in date, which is all well and good except that... In addition to the rebate not exceeding $3,500 for a work truck, the truck could only be traded in for a Category 2 or 3 truck of similar or smaller size. So yeah, there was a lot of tape to get around. And the same was true for passenger cars as well. Basically, to purchase a new car under the umbrella of cash for clunkers, the passenger car had to have an MSRP of no greater than $45,000 and fuel economy rating no less than 22 miles per gallon. Now, remember when I mentioned how one of the stipulations attached to the bill sort of undermined its ability to be effective? Well, it was this additional fuel economy requirement that economists theorized was the cause of the program's failure. The American Economic Journal suggests cash for clunkers likely would have been successful had fuel economy eligibility requirements simply been limited to which cars could be traded in, and not which cars were eligible to purchase following a trade-in. The problem was the 22 miles per gallon minimum on passenger vehicles eligible for purchase under the subsidy. Rather than encouraging people to buy more expensive cars, they were instead encouraged to buy more fuel-efficient vehicles which, at this point, were considerably cheaper. And yeah, the idea of cash for clunkers was to help the environment by reducing emissions and all that crazy mess, but the goal was to stimulate the economy through the automotive industry, and this sort of undermined that. People who might have considered buying in the $30,000 to $50,000 range were now topping out at cars running between $15,000 and $25,000. On average, consumers spent $7,600 less per subsidy than they would have without the secondary eligibility requirement that their new car had to get at least 22 miles per gallon. Fuel-efficient cars were now in high demand, but they were on the more inexpensive end of new cars available. Because why purchase a new Mercedes for $45,000 when you could have a Prius for roughly half that? To make matters worse was the realization that Cash for Cluckers didn't really encourage people to buy cars when they might not have. Instead, it simply encouraged people who were planning on buying a new car anyway to just buy one sooner, in order to take advantage of the subsidy. In fact, by the time the program ended, the American Economic Journal found that roughly 60% of consumers claiming subsidies would have probably purchased a new car during that time period regardless. The result? There wasn't much of a change in new car ownership between those eligible for the program and those who weren't. Sure, the program succeeded in reducing carbon dioxide emissions, but Ted Geyer and Emily Parker of the Washington, D.C.-based research group the Brookings Institution, in their report, Cash for Clunkers, an evaluation, noted that this method was no more cost-effective than a plain old carbon tax. 
and the actual benefit to the environment was considerably smaller than anticipated. Sure, it was a bit of a difference, since getting three quarters of a million gas guzzlers off the road is good, but as a Mother's Day gift to Mother Nature, it's more or less the equivalent of making her breakfast in bed, but the breakfast is Cheerios, burnt toast, and coffee with a seabed of grounds at the bottom of the mug. The thought is nice, but at that point, you might as well have not bothered at all. And this is without even getting into how it caused headaches for the recyclers themselves. In short, cars traded in under the rebate system had their engines destroyed using a sodium silicate solution poured directly into the engine. This was to prevent trade-ins from being resold with new titles. Under the new law, the salvage facility couldn't sell the engine or cylinder heads from a trade-in, nor could they sell a rolling chassis from the vehicle. All other components were fair game, although these components typically weren't as valuable as what they were being asked to destroy. The law also mandated that the hull of the vehicle, for lack of a better term, had to be destroyed within 180 days from trade-in. But the problem is that even if the recyclers abided by these stipulations, it was hard for them to know when they'd be getting paid by the government. You see, to further aid in preventing junked cars from being resold, the federal government built the National Motor Vehicle Title Information System. Within seven days of a car's trade-in, recyclers had to report the VIN and the overall status of the clunker to the information system system, but the public site and the dealer site shared a server, meaning the site often became overloaded to the point of crashing, which then meant paperwork was backed up and payments to recyclers were delayed. It got to the point where it almost didn't make sense for a recycler to participate in the program because even if they did get paid by the government, odds are they could have made more from the parts they destroyed. In a sense, it felt as though anything that could have gone wrong did, and that's because, well, Virtually everything that could have gone wrong did. By the time Cash for Clunkers came to an end, 690,000 vehicles, approximately, had been taken off the road, with $2.8 billion in funds being used. And I suppose this is where we get into what really bugged auto enthusiasts about Cash for Clunkers, especially today the destruction of rare, classic, or otherwise perfectly serviceable vehicles. The Detroit Free Press, by way of data from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, discovered that the range of cars destroyed in cash for clunkers included cars of varying degrees of expense and rarity. Now, I initially had a full list of cars that had been scrapped by cash for clunkers, only to realize that many of the ones I assumed to have been destroyed were actually spared at the last minute. So I'm going to focus mostly on a handful of cars that, from my research, I'm certain didn't survive. Which is not to say these models are completely extinct, but I don't know exactly how likely you are to find one of these out in the wild. Now, one of those cars is the GMC Typhoon. Fewer than 5,000 were produced for the 1992 model year, and hell, Clint Eastwood and Bob Seeger daily Typhoons in their day. In 1991, a Typhoon was capable of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with a Ferrari of the same era, going from 0 to 60 in just over 5 seconds on the surprising muscle of a turbocharged 4.3-liter V6. Sure, the styling might be a bit murka for some, but hey, I kinda like it. There's a confidence to it. A sense of barrel-chested poise. If a Dodge Ram is a guy outside the bar waiting for the guy he challenged to come get these hands, then the Typhoon is the guy inside the bar who doesn't fight because he's too busy drinking beers, throwing darts, and trying to get Wendy the bartender to come home with him, because life is too short, especially when you work on an oil rig. Was it a revolutionary vehicle? No, but then I don't know that any of the cars on this list are. 
That doesn't mean, however, that they didn't have value. I mean, look at the Typhoon. It's got character. And it could have had value to somebody, instead of being scrapped for less than it was probably worth. So rest in peace, GMC Typhoon. I don't know if you're missed, but I feel like I probably would have missed you had I known you. Like John Candy or Phil Hartman. Man, I miss those guys now. On the opposite end of the Merca spectrum is the 1990 LaForza SUV. Wait, really? Auto Trader pretty much described this as an Italian Range Rover, and yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's basically a Range Rover married to an underpowered Ford V8, but with enough awkward Italian style to make up the difference. It was a military off-roader called the Magnum 4x4 when it made its European debut in 1984, but automaker Rayton Fissor founded by Fernanda Fissor of the famous Fissor coach-building family, and I'm probably saying their last name wrong, wanted to bring the Magnum to the States, but with more American engine choices. Funnily enough, despite wanting to penetrate the US market, Rayton Fissor felt the Magnum name was too American, and so they renamed it the LaForza, and added that 5-liter Ford V8 for broader appeal in the United States. The design wasn't particularly inspired, but you did get hand-stitched Italian leather to give the sensation of a more luxurious vehicle than you were actually getting. And it does have a peculiar charm to it, sort of like an automotive Roberto Benini. I mean, look at it. It's so achingly simplistic in its design that you almost can't help but respect its Italian car in American cosplay aesthetic. And yet, like the Typhoon, I'm not entirely sure to what extent anybody actually misses this car because people clearly didn't seem to care enough about it when it was here, you know? And I think that's the case for a lot of the cars on this list. It's people trading in something that never really spoke to them in the first place, or people trading in something they didn't know was special, and, you know, maybe sometimes you don't really know what you have. Not everybody is that Craigslist bro who's aware of what they have in their garage. Sometimes you just give something away without realizing that it was something more than you thought. This is, of course, excluding those who were trading in a car that was more or less falling apart, or something they just outright hated, like a Jetta or something. But I digress. A bit more exotic is the 1980 TVR 280i convertible. On the one hand, many of its components were sourced from Ford vehicles of that era, like the suspension, steering, and gearbox off of Ford Cortina, a radiator from the Grenada Mark II, rear lamp clusters from a Capri, and the 2.8-liter Ford Cologne V6 engine, getting around 160 brake horsepower and 162 pound-feet of torque. It's got a nose longer than my Isle of Man TT video, and apparently has a tubular space frame chassis so stiff it's an understudy at Brazzers. It also gets its differential and rear brakes from the Jaguar XJS, as if it hasn't borrowed enough already. But on the other hand, this is such a visually distinctive car that it still seems more exotic than you would think from what's underneath the hood. It stirs to mind images of a man who can't remember if he bought that Hooters franchise in a haze of drunken irony or a fog of sober madness. It's a car he knows his son will grow up to one day crash, or trade in for far less than its value after he's dead. Meanwhile, the 1992 BMW 850i seems less concerned with coming across as exotic. It's more about projecting affluence and a diversified stock portfolio. Its cost in 1992 was approximately 100 large. Aesthetically, the 850i screams money from the top of the New York Coliseum. Old money, new money. 
This car is a person who faints when someone asks for jelly at a place that only serves all fruit. Could you do better? Sure. But you could also have done a whole hell of a lot worse. BMW 850i. Sponsored by ad executives whose mustaches smell like secretaries and Grey Poupon. Not even the Monopoly guy was rolling around in this thing. Not since he ended up in jail due to tax evasion over that hotel on Baltic Avenue. Now Uncle Pennybags is doing 15 years next to a cellmate with sleep apnea who spends most of the afternoon making toilet wine. And these are just individual vehicles. Cars like the Typhoon and the LaForza SUV were joined in the graveyard by a litany of the lost, such as the 20th anniversary Pontiac Trans Am, the 1985 Audi Quattro, a 1988 Aurora Cobra kit car, a 1996 Black Funeral Coach, and any number of Mustangs and Camaros of various generations. The graveyard is littered with the kind of style and 80s muscle that could have main-evented the Philly Spectrum against King Kong Bundy. I'm going mostly off of the archive of trade-ins from cars.gov, so while it's possible that some of these cars were ultimately spared, it's still stunning to see so many of these cars on this list in the first place. This is before even getting into the groupings of cars that were junked, such as over a thousand Jaguars, 14 USPS Ford Explorers, nearly 2,000 Oldsmobile Auroras, 327 Supras, 61 Fieros, 569 nice models across the Firebird Trans Am family, over 1,500 Crown Vicks, 107 Ford Taurus shows, 15 Isuzu V-Crosses, countless Dodge Stealths, and over 5,000 Mercedes-Benz models, including the SL, the S600, the 1994 500E, the 1995 C36, and the 99 C43 and Porsches including the 928 S4 and the 944, nearly 4,000 BMWs across M3, M5, Z3, 850i, and 740iL protection models. Even AMC Eagles were on the list, wounding my soul. Of course, the majority of trade-ins weren't all that exotic, in the grand scheme of things, but that doesn't mean you can't still pour one out for the lost. According to Consumer Guide, the 10 cars most turned in under cash for clunkers were, at number one, the Ford Explorer four-wheel drive, number two, the Ford F-150 two-wheel drive, in third, the Jeep Grand Cherokee four-wheel drive, and number four, the Ford Explorer two-wheel drive, number five, Dodge Caravan, number six, Grand Caravan Jeep Cherokee four-wheel drive. Number seven, Chevy Blazer four-wheel drive. Number eight, Chevy C1500 pickup two-wheel drive. Number nine, the Ford F-150 four-wheel drive. And number 10, the Ford Windstar. So yeah, not that surprising, honestly. I mean, they're all big and American and gas-thirsty, but the money didn't exactly stay with American automakers once those cars were traded in. The top cars purchased under Cash for Clunkers were from majority foreign automakers. They were, number one, the Toyota Corolla. Number two, the Honda Civic. Number three, the Toyota Camry. Number four, the Ford Focus. Number five, the Hyundai Elantra. Number six, the Nissan Versa. Number seven, the Toyota Prius. Number eight, Honda Accord. Number nine, Honda Fit. And number 10, Ford Escape, two-wheel drive. What's strange is that out of several cars submitted for the program, many shouldn't have even qualified in the first place since, according to EPA estimates, they each made more than 18 miles per gallon. 
For instance, there's a Dodge Neon and a Hyundai Accent among the list of trade-ins that really shouldn't have been in there in the first place. But then, I suppose that in some regards, Cash for Clunkers failed because it was a strangely inconsistent system, whose benefits didn't seem as clear as its more problematic components. And at last we come to the time where we get into the biggest issues surrounding Cash for Clunkers in the long run. First and foremost is the simple reality that Cash for Clunkers wasn't nearly as good for the environment as expected. Why? Well, the Brookings Institute study estimated that Cash for Clunkers cut greenhouse gas emissions by the equivalent of removing 5 million cars from the road, which honestly makes no sense to me, but then I was a liberal arts major, so I don't understand math. The problem was that the cost of getting to this emissions reduction was high, without the emissions reduction being all that high itself, since many of the cars traded in were near the end of their lifespans anyway. The American Economist noted that the average mileage for junked vehicles was around 160,155 miles, but the big environmental failing of Cash for Clunkers was that many of the cars traded in weren't recycled as completely as they could have been. According to the Automotive Recyclers Association, nearly 100% of a car is recyclable. Yes, even, hell, especially the engines that the government ordered junked. Many of these perfectly good engines could have been used in other cars, but they weren't, which caused an environmental cost deficit since the amount of resources that went into manufacturing the engine were no longer being repurposed for any actual use. More troubling still, the shredding process resulted in Herculean tons of chemical waste ending up in landfills across the country, all while ignoring countless things that could have been recycled that, in a lot of cases, weren't. Stuff like the plastics and the various fluids from a car, whether it's transmission fluid, brake fluid, oil, gasoline, or even the Freon from the air conditioners, all missed opportunities through this program, because the program was largely centered on the correlation between carbon emissions and overall fuel economy, neglecting to recognize that there's more to a car's potential effect on the environment than what you can quantify in a trade-in. Secondly, some of the cars submitted for Cash for Clunkers weren't recycled at all. Some of the cars traded in were simply resold because it was an easier and safer way to get money than to wait on the government to come through with whatever GameStop trade-in deal they were offering. That's how you ended up finding Pontiac Trans Ams at car auctions, selling for double what they're worth or what the government would have paid in scrap. Cash for Clunkers ended up creating this segment of automotive consumerism where private sellers have acquired cars that, once common, had now become rare. And you had to pay a premium if you wanted the chance to relive the golden days in a car that for all intents and purposes, didn't really exist anymore. Granted, this isn't exactly a new phenomenon, but from a purely anecdotal standpoint, it seemed to increase post-cash for clunkers. But then, maybe that's confirmation bias, recognizing the rise of Craigslist and seeing a bunch of cars I like that I'm priced out of owning. But, ugh, the more things change, am I right? Thirdly, the destruction of many perfectly serviceable cars created a used car shortage. No longer could low-income workers find cars that were both affordable and reliable without taking out some sort of car loan or signing up for some predatory financing plan. 
And this is because Cash for Clunkers was constructed to target those who were willing and able to buy new. But not everybody can afford the luxury of buying new. In fact, many people seriously damaged their own credit scores by taking on debt they couldn't pay. And yes, you could blame the consumer for not being better at assessing the priorities of their finances. Lord knows plenty of people know what it's like robbing Peter to pay Paul, re-evaluating their financial priorities on a weekly or monthly basis. Basically, it's which payment is going to be late this month so I can keep the lights on and my kids fed. Yeah, it's easy to say, well, they shouldn't have taken on debt they couldn't pay. And yes, it's true that some people are just crazy and don't care when weighing the mortgage-sized car payments against the possibility of owning a new Laramie or some other ridiculous expenditure. But for others, sometimes life just happens. The kids are sick. The pipes burst. Grandma has a stroke and needs to be put in a home. The house was robbed. Your identity was stolen. You want to pay off the student loans finally. Whatever. You may have taken on those payments in good faith, confident you'd be able to pay them back. But then something happens and you have to reevaluate your priorities. You never know. Not everyone out here in debt is living large and just ignoring their responsibilities. They're trying their best to make amends while also living some semblance of a life with a modicum of happiness in it. And so people were ruining their credit and going into debt when they'd have been better off just keeping the car they had and never accepting the rebate in the first place, provided their car was actually still running and not actually falling apart on the road. And even then, you can make the argument that repairs would probably be cheaper than the debt they've accrued. Just one month ago, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York released findings that a record 7 million Americans are 90 days or more behind on their car payments. That's even worse than during the recession in 2008. That's going into red flag territory for the economy. And who knows if it'll get better before it gets worse. Fourth, while Cash for Clunkers did see a short-term spending increase, it wasn't anywhere near as much as expected. Because the consumers using the program were not the consumers the government had anticipated. You see, the government figured this program would reach people who were hesitant to let go of their gas guzzler because a trade-up would be prohibitively expensive. The hope was to reach these people and coax them into buying a new car, convincing people with no intention of buying a new car to roll into their nearest dealership and stimulate the economy like a prostate during birthday sex. And the short-term spending increase suggested that the idea was a hit. According to the Brookings Institute's report, vehicle sales increased by 370,000 across July and August 2009. Which would have been great, except as evidenced by the increased demand for less expensive, fuel-efficient vehicles, higher sales didn't necessarily mean higher revenue. And there was the much larger problem that the program offered no further stimulus once it ended. So basically, new car purchases were more or less the same in 2009 as they would have been without cash for clunkers. Lastly, the Brookings Institute theorized that by encouraging people who would have bought new anyway to simply buy new sooner, the GDP was boosted by around $2 billion, with roughly 2,050 jobs created. Except in the trade-off, the program cost roughly $1.4 million per job created, which is far more expensive than other means of stimulating the economy, such as reducing payroll tax for employers and employees, or increasing unemployment benefits. So yeah, the program had its share of successes, but you can fill a crown with as many jewels as you want to try and look like a baller. At the end of the day, all you're going to have are neck problems. Although the funds were expected to last the program through November, Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood announced on August 20th that the program would end on Monday, August 24th, 2009. And with that, 
Cash for Clunkers met an ignominious end. Does anyone even use the word ignominious anymore? It's short, it, it, you know, like ignominy. It's like saying infamous, but not really. <laughs> Ultimately, some would argue that, at best, Cash for Clunkers did little to change things for the better, while others would argue that it did actual damage, not only to the automotive industry, but to the economy at large. I came into this wanting to be objective, well, at least in theory, but it's kind of difficult to see this as anything other than a disaster that should realistically never be repeated. Sure, it was well-intentioned, and governance is as much an exercise in trial and error as it is in kickbacks, double-dealing, and all that other shadiness that makes up our expectations of what governance actually entails. But it's hard to imagine a scenario in which Cash for Clunkers was anything other than what its last word entailed. Although Cash for Clunkers reported some $2.8 billion in rebates, with Ray LaHood declaring the car allowance rebate system the best economic news story in America, the program ultimately didn't hold up to the harsh magnifying glass of hindsight. Economic advisor Austin Goolsby noted in 2011 that the Obama administration misjudged how quickly the country could recover from the economic damage of the 2008 economic collapse although he would claim that despite the criticisms of the program, it, quote, warded off a depression. Of course, even though the government ended cash for clunkers, that doesn't mean it didn't continue at the state level. For instance, the state of California has its own cash for clunkers car buyback program, operated by the Bureau of Automotive Repair. As with the federal program, the goal is to, quote, promote clean air by removing older vehicles that are currently operating on California highways and roads. The state level incentives are much lower than they were at the federal level, with a basic rebate of around $1,000 per vehicle and $1,500 per vehicle for low income participants. Despite the state continually renewing the program each year, there's no real indication that it's any more successful than Cash for Clunkers was at the federal level. A 2014 report by the Daily Signal found that over 60% of scrapped vehicles were unregistered, which implies that many of these cars weren't even being driven, so scrapping them may not have had much of an environmental benefit at all. I mean, hindsight is 2020 and all that, but it's difficult to imagine that 2009 will be the last time that the government steps in to help the auto industry with some wild plan that ends up backfiring. The best you can do is take care of the car you have. Be mindful of your finances, and try your best not to fall into the trap of predatory lending practices. Because you never know. Sometimes life just happens. But also, if a deal seems like it's too good to be true, it probably is.